Book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 23. And that is found in your pew Bibles on page 1194. We can stand for the reading of the word. Scripture reading again is Romans 1, 16 to 23, page 1194 in your black pew Bibles. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's say it together. Our memory verse, we've arrived at the uh, last uh, week of our um, first chapter study of Romans. And uh, hopefully every day you have been working uh, on the memory verse. So let's just say it together. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the spirit, all the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen. Now get ready because we're going to be adding two more verses to that next month. We are working our way through this book of Romans, and the opening verses of Romans have evoked a strong emotional appeal to us as the readers as we looked at those first seven verses and and this you could catch Paul's heart going out to them and then verses 8 to 15 just opened that up and and caught us up in this concept of of unity and oneness and companionship and love that Paul had towards the the uh, people in Rome and that we ought to have towards one another. His longing to visit them and, and to be with them. But hidden in these passionate verses lies a heady truth, a, a truth that encompasses the majority of this book. The Gospel. The Gospel. It's almost missed. Because he is lavishing so much love and encouragement on the church that we might miss those two words until we ask as the reader, why is it that Paul wants to visit this church so much? See, Paul's longing to visit the Christians in Rome is rooted in, as he says in the first verse and then later on in the sixth verse, in his calling his calling as an apostle, a calling that demands that he invests in them, as he calls it, a spiritual gift, being able to come to them and invest in them 
the spiritual giftedness of his apostolic ministry to touch their lives and to bring them the understanding of what this gospel is all about. And that's why the conclusion of this very personal introduction to the book creates also a transition. A transition into a case. God versus humanity. A legal case brought by God against the human race. This transition, verses 16 and 17, as Paul transitions out of this, uh, this very emotional, encouraging opening and goes into the rest of the book, all of this presents to us the very purpose, the theme of the book. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, transforms this letter of Paul into a legal document in which Paul argues that God has every right to destroy the human race. This past week, those of you who follow the news at all, you know that the House managers were presenting to the Senate the case for the impeachment of Donald J. Trump. And then yesterday, the White House counsel, the counsel for the president, gave their opening arguments against the impeachment. It's a legal trial, and it has great importance for us here in America. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul is serving as God's legal counsel. He is presenting a case for God's righteous indignation against the unrighteousness of humanity and God's right to judge them because of their wicked acts. Only the gospel, only the gospel holds God's wrath from instantly destroying this corrupt world the same way that he did in the days of Noah. And so as our theme says, the gospel alone provides the fire insurance that will keep the wrath of God from consuming the whole human race the way the flood once did. Only the gospel. If it was not for the gospel, the gospel given in Genesis 3, the gospel given to Noah after the flood, the gospel given through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we saw as we studied the book of Genesis, and that gospel that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, if it was not for the gospel, we would be destroyed, condemned for all of eternity. And so from this point on, in this study of the book of Romans, until we reach chapter 15, there will be no more personal comments by Paul to individuals or even to the church at Rome at all. Paul has moved out of that opening friendship 
to become a lawyer. And what we will see from this point on is a very solid, logical argument from the gospel on God's behalf. Everything in these next 15 chapters loses the camaraderie of the opening verses as Paul shifts to this logical, legal presentation of the message of Christianity in the gospel. For that reason, it's essential for you and me to know as we read and study the book of Romans, are we understanding the compelling theme? Are we understanding this compelling theme that is presented to us in this book? Particularly as we see it in summary form in verses 16 and 17. Now I know that we're memorizing Romans 8. But if there are two other verses that you need to memorize in the book of Romans, and there are many other ones, but, but these two are critical for our understanding, not only of the book of Romans, because they are the theme of the book of Romans, not only the book of Romans, however, to understand what the gospel is all about. These verses provide the rationale for everything that he is going to present in the rest of the book. Verse 16 transitions from Paul's very friendly, personal opening into the theological argument as he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The church at Rome has in it both Jews and Gentiles. We will discover as we go through the book that there is a racial tension that has taken place there between the two. Paul addresses that in verse 14 through 16. He addresses that issue, and he is going to return to it in chapters 9 to 11. But here in verse 16, he gives the opening salvo against all racial division and dissension within the church of Jesus Christ. When he states that the gospel is to the Jew first, he has no intention of placing the Jews as more prominent than the Gentiles, not then and not now. He is simply stating a fact that the gospel came first to the Jews before it came to the Gentiles because as he stated in verse 3, Jesus was born of David. David was a Jew, Jesus was a Jew. As a result, the Jews had the first opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. But the gospel is no respecter of persons. It never was, not under the old covenant and not under the new covenant. Why? Notice how Paul defines the righteousness of God. The gospel the, the good news rests on this grand truth, the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God, or as Nick described it earlier, the righteousness from God, having both of those uh, implications in this text, the righteousness 
of or from God stands as both the reason for God's righteous judgment against the unrighteous humans, and it becomes the means by which God will withhold his judgment from those who are being saved. The opening argument that Paul is presenting in this legal presentation, God's legal case against humanity, comes in the first line of verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in what? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel, which he talks the whole book about. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, and we are going to see this more clearly when we get to chapter 3. But all of humanity stands now before the judgment seat of God, the Creator. From the moment of birth, every human being is standing before the throne of God in judgment. No one escapes from that. No one can hide from it, no matter how young, no matter how old. You see, the human race was created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God that we might reflect the character and the nature of God before the world. Now, according to Paul, creation is still doing that. Creation is still showcasing the glory of God. His eternal nature. His great power being revealed in nature itself. And humanity was created to live in this world as reflectors of the character and nature of God, to showcase that before the world. Our right to exist depends on how well we carry out what we were created to do. If the royal family over in England commissions an artist to draw the portrait of Queen Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, and that artist draws a picture of her as an English trollop. I see a few frowns. What's a trollop? A prostitute. A loose woman. If they, that artist, draws a picture, a portrait of her, to look like a loose woman, they would have every right to have that artist beheaded. How much more is required of those who are to be the portrait of God in the midst of this world? God is righteous. And each and every human being must, by purpose of creation, represent that righteousness of God in the midst of this creation. The purpose of the gospel is not 
to save us to go to heaven. We've said that many times. It is that the righteousness of God might be revealed through us as we are recreated, conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. To miss that point is to twist the gospel, to twist the message of Scripture, to twist the idea of salvation to be man-centered, to be about us. Human demanding religion that makes a mockery of God and says that God must do this for me. But that is what the gospel means. And that's why we must also notice how Paul defines the reception of God. The righteousness of God, how is that received by us? You see, we once were created in the image of God to reflect His glory in the midst of the world. That was lost with Adam and Eve. How then can we possibly receive that righteousness of God so that we can reflect His glory once again? The gospel... Paul declared in verse 16, is the power of God for salvation. Salvation. From what? What is it that we are being saved from? Is it simply that we are being saved from hell? No. We're going to see that in a moment when we get to verse 18. However, now... We need to understand that the gospel is not for the salvation of all of humanity. I was saddened to hear this from Aaron Rodgers, who the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, a one-time outspoken professor of Christianity. But listen to what he has to say now. I'm Danica Patrick, and I'm pretty intense. Most people that I knew, church was just, you just had to go. Your parents made you go, you wake up, you put some clothes on, you go, and you can't wait to get back and watch the second game of the day in the NFL on TV. But uh, I, I started going to Young Life, and that's where I met Matt Hawk, who you know, Matt, and Matt was leading our Young Life group there for a while. and He was the first Christian that I met where I was like, man, like, this dude like swears every now and then. He loves sports. He like coaches sports. He's like, an, he's an awesome dude. Like he's just a really rad guy to be around. Uh, I kind of like, you know, I don't, the way that he talks about Jesus and the way that he talks about um, what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Like that's pretty cool. So I enjoyed my time with Young Life. We did some amazing outreach stuff. You know, we went to Mexico during two spring breaks and build houses in, like, Florido, outside Tijuana, rough areas. You know, we, we erected the, you know, from slab to walls to tar in the roof to stucco on the outside. Like, we put together, you know, homes for these folks who were living in, you know, garage door sides, you know, thrown together and stuff. And that was meaningful. You know, that was, like, really meaningful work. And 
there's not really a young life for college. It's, it gets into more organized, you know, athletes in action or whatever it might be, campus organizations. And I just didn't find any connection points with with those things and started questioning things and had friends who had other beliefs and uh, enjoyed learning. That's kind of a part of my life. had some good friendships along the way that uh, helped me, you know, to figure out what exactly I wanted to believe in. And ultimately it was that uh, rules and regulations and binary systems um, don't really resonate with me. You know, enjoyed learning about other religions and meeting the Dalai Lama. And, you know, it's been a, a fun path to to a different type of spirituality, which uh, which to me is more. It's been more meaningful. Would you just would you separate the two being spirituality and religion? Like you were religious and now you're spiritual. I think both can work for people. I do. I think some people just need structure and uh, they need tradition and stuff, and that that works for them. And I don't mm -hmm. have a you know, a problem with it that doesn't it doesn't resonate with me. Yeah. How far back can you go and identify like, yeah, I thought it was weird when I was four, like or whatever. Is there an example? Can you identify when the skeptic and the questioner in you was really yeah. present? I mean, high school for sure, because I had two groups I was going to. I was going to a, to church on Sundays, and then to Young Life on Mondays. And Young Life on Monday welcomed everyone. You know, it's like, right. come as you are. Be there at seven twenty-nine, yep. and like be ready for some fun. And it was fun, and we had a great time. Church on Sundays was like more, you know, make sure you dress a certain way and don't right. bring that person. And this person's going to get looked at strangely if they show up. And yeah. I think, you know, again, it's very black and white, uh, binary in binary sense. But I don't think it's very welcoming. Uh, religion can be a crutch. Can be a um, can be something that people have to have to make themselves feel better. And because it's set a binary, it's us and them. It's saved and unsaved. It's heaven and hell. It's enlightened and heathen. It's holy and righteous and sinner and filthy. And that makes, I think that makes a lot of people feel better about themselves. They say, oh, you know, I have... You know, I got Jesus, and you know, I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. And there's only 144,000 of us going, even though there's seven billion people on the planet. Uh, and you know, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet, you know, to a fiery hell. Like, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being? wants to condemn most of his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this. Who is his standard for what a Christian ought to be? It was a young life leader who swore sometimes, who liked sports and had fun. That's what made Aaron like being around him and his form of Christianity. And it tends to be the way that many people, even today, decide on whether they're going to attend a church, a certain church, or whether they're going to hang around with Christians. Are they 
like me? Are they worldly like me? You see, the actual standard is not what Aaron Rodgers likes. The actual standard is not what you like. It's not what I like. The standard is the righteousness of God. He created us for that purpose. He did not create us to like whatever we like and hope that everybody else likes what we like. The only possible means by which any human Jew or Gentile will stand before God and not be condemned is not whether somebody swears once in a while as a Christian or like sports. It is by faith from first to last, from beginning to the end. God's goodness God's perfection, God's righteousness to which no human being now can ever attain. And that's why the second half of verse 17 presents the rest of the gospel. The first part of the gospel is the righteousness of God being revealed. The second part of the gospel is that that righteousness comes to us from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The meaning of that faith is going to be explained to us in depth when we hit chapter 4. As I said, these two verses are pointing us forward to the things that are coming. Verse 18, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, they're all in this passage. But as we look at these two verses, Paul wants us to understand the theme of the gospel, which is the theme of this book. God's righteousness comes to us by faith and by faith alone. Now, as any court case, that opening description of where we're going is given, and then there is the arguments to prove that point, and that is what Paul is going to do beginning in verse 18. He is now going to prove what he has just laid out in verses 16 and 17. You, the reader, you, the hearer of these passages, you are the jury. You must understand the compelling theme that the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, is the revelation of the righteousness of God, and it must be received by faith from first to last. Salvation is not about heaven. It is not about feeling good about yourself or liking how somebody presents Christianity. Salvation is about the power of God at work to restore human beings to what God created us to be at the beginning, image bearers of God, which was lost by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You are the jurors. You are to hear these arguments that he is going to make from chapter 
1, verse 18, until chapter 15, listening to the arguments, and hopefully by the end, you will fully understand what this gospel is all about. Paul is going to give us why we should believe. So that you and I come to the conclusion that he has come to. That the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Because in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. A righteousness that is from faith, for faith, from beginning to end. And once you understand that theme, once you understand that that is what this book is about, Paul now is going to lay out his arguments. Therefore, notice how understanding the constant threat to us is absolutely essential. If the human race does not understand the danger that we are in, it will never seek salvation. So what is it that we need to be saved from? Verse 18 states it quite powerfully. For the wrath of God is revealed. Yes, Aaron, there is a hell. And yes... There will be many people who will be in that hell. The danger is not some silly little trifle. It is not Iran, little Iran, threatening great big United States. The issue is not some hypothetical climate change movie scene that somebody made up. Climate change might be a threat to the earth. But the hypothetical, hey, it might do this, it might do that, it's hypothetical. This is not hypothetical. This is real. The threat is that the creator of the universe has become enraged. Not that he will become enraged. He is now enraged. Is revealed is a present tense. So notice how Paul describes this retribution of God against the wickedness of humanity. Remember who it is that we're talking about here. The universe. Not the earth. The universe fits in the palm of his hand. By his word alone... The universe came into existence. It is sustained by the word of His power. As Jesus proved, the winds and the waves obey His word. Mountains rise and fall at His command. We read in Job that He hoards the snow and then He sends it forth to do His bidding. This is the one that we read about there in verse 18. 
that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Don't be deceived. The scripture says God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. You sow wickedness, of wickedness you will reap. Death answers to God's call. Nations rise and fall at His desire. There is nothing that can withstand His power. And who are you? Who am I? Who is Aaron Rodgers? To set yourself against the Almighty and to, to, to demand your right to self-rule. God made you. He made me for a purpose. Not for our choice of what we want to do. Friday, this past Friday, the Right to Life March was held in Washington, D.C. It drew about 100,000 people or more to gather there to argue the issue of abortion is not about choice. Well, my friends, the whole book of Romans makes that argument. Not just about abortion, but about life itself. The whole of Romans shouts that truth. Human beings do not have the right to decide what is right or wrong. We do not get to choose what we like or what we dislike. What is acceptable or not acceptable to God. This is the Creator's prerogative and His alone. He determines right and wrong. He determines truth and error. His righteous wrath is being revealed every day. Diseases, earthquakes, snake bites, tsunamis, drug overdoses, in every means by which the puniness of man is shown. We cannot stand against God. He is God. You are not. How many times will we say that through the book of Romans? He is God. You are not. I'm beginning to sound like the house managers. Repeat, 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 and repeat again. God's righteousness demands justice against the wickedness of mankind. God's glory will be shown, must be shown. His justice shall stand in spite of human sin. So notice how Paul describes the rejection of God as the basis for that wrath. With all of this truth about God, day after day, human beings reject God. They reject the truth about God. Politicians mock God. Hollywood projects the image that the human beings are superior to all things. Movie after movie places the human race against aliens, 
that have far superior technology than we have. And yet we always win. Whether it's the Transformers, or Independence Day, or Star Wars, or Battleship, human beings can take on the universe. Undermanned, underarmed, but always triumphant. The human spirit will rise. The human spirit will win. And that's the lie that is portrayed to us day after day. From the days of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, the human race has thumbed its nose at God and said, we don't need you anymore. We can do things on our own. Verse 18 ends with words that condemn us, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In our universities, in our high schools, God is ignored. Biologists claim life occurred accidentally. Geologists tell us the flood never happened. Politicians kicked God out of the schools in the 1960s out of the government buildings in the 1970s, off public property in the 1980s, and they continue to remove God from every part of public life. In the words of Psalm 2, however, why do the nations rage, the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Aaron Rodgers can say, well, you know, those rules and regulations, they're a little bit too rigid. They don't fit the God that I believe in. I will be my own determiner of who God is. But it isn't just Aaron Rodgers, is it? The vast majority of humanity. We suppress the truth about who God is. But how has it worked out? How has this kicking God out of our culture and out of America, how has that worked out for us? The murder rates have soared. 60 million babies ripped out of their mother's womb. Our prisons overflow with too many criminals. The homeless flood our streets. We're reaping what we sow. We told God to get out, and God has. Step back. We blame it on economics. We blame it on climate change. We blame it on any other reason except the true reason, the suppression of the truth about God. Well, we might excuse it as ignorance if we could, but we can't. It's important for you. You are the jury. It is important for you to notice how understanding the clear truth about God's righteousness and our wickedness leaves humanity without excuse. I've often heard people say that God would never send someone to hell. Seven billion people and only 144,000 are going to make it. I don't know where you got that from. That's a Jehovah's Witness teaching. It's not a Christian teaching. But anyway, 144,000, right? What good God would send the majority of those people, to hell. 
Would God ever send someone to hell who had never heard the gospel, never heard about Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. Yes, he will. You see, God sends them to hell because they have suppressed the truth. They never saw God. If the evidence is clear and you suppress that evidence, then you are guilty. How do those who have never heard of Jesus Christ or the gospel, how do they suppress the truth? Well, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There are no people on this planet who do not have some form of religion. Oh, yes, there are the modern atheists, but those are atheists by choice. In other words, it's not that they didn't know about religion. They have made it a choice to reject religion. But go to a place where those rebellious atheists have not had an influence and you will not find people without a belief in God. A God of some kind, a religion of some form. So notice how Paul discloses this revelation of God to all of humanity. We've explained many times why God is invisible to us. It is not because God is hiding from us. God is invisible because God is immense. God is invisible because we don't have the capacity in our limited human frame to be able to see and to know him. We are material. God is spirit. Spirit is not less than material. It is way far more than material. God is a trillion dimensions, and we are but three-dimensional. Our human senses cannot see God any more than we can see air or space. That doesn't mean that God, however, has hidden himself. Verse 20 begins, For his invisible, yes, he is invisible, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God, in his greatness, his immensity, has still made himself known. Purposefully. Only an idiot. Even a brilliant idiot. What the Bible calls a fool would say there is no God. That is just plain stupidity. It might have been somewhat excusable before scientists began to unravel the cells of the body and the understanding of an atom, the intricacies of life, and the way the universe is held together. No one in their right mind can today believe that the universe and life in this universe began on its own. It's impossible for anyone with any scientific knowledge to think that. And that's why somewhere around the 80% of all non-biologist scientists in this world have become, and I say become because they started many of them as atheists, but have become theists as they have studied the universe and as they have studied life on this planet. 
The evidence is overwhelming. God has clearly revealed himself in nature so that they are without excuse. Therefore, as Paul's arguments continue, as he works through this legal presentation, notice how Paul discloses the recognition of God. How do you see him? We do not need Ravi Zacharias to argue for the existence of God. You do not have to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis or Darwin's Black Box to prove Christianity is true. All of the apologetic arguments are futile. And yet they are still necessary because of the blind culture in which we live. Why are they futile? Because God has already proved the perfection of his character and his nature, perfectly producing evidence of his existence without a shadow of a doubt, and they have rejected it. When those who continue to rebel in their foolishness to reject God, and they stand before God on that final day of judgment, verse 20 declares, so they are without excuse. On 9-11, many of those so-called agnostics or atheists suddenly called for prayer. Politicians who had kicked God out of our culture wept, and they told us to pray. They know there's a God. They can deceive, try to deceive other people, but they know deep down in their heart, they know there's a God, but they refuse to acknowledge Him. Because if they acknowledge Him, it means they must worship Him and they must obey Him. Something that they will not do. Now, Paul continues his argument. He comes to the fourth argument as we're working our way through this, and it calls for an understanding the clouded thinking of this world. The more you suppress the truth, the easier it is to believe a lie. The farther you move from light, the more accustomed you become to living in the darkness. And that is what has happened and continues to happen in our culture. According to verse 21, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became. They weren't born that way. They moved that way. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. We can see this progression just in our own lifetime. In the early 1990s, Vice President Dan Quayle called out Murphy Brown, the TV series, for having Murphy Brown openly choose to become pregnant out of wedlock. And he was mocked. He was ridiculed for his Puritan beliefs. Today, we have some 50 gender descriptions 
each one identifying themselves differently because we said God's morality was old-fashioned. We have moved into the darkness of moral decay and in our national blindness and accepted it as normal. So notice how Paul debunks this refusal of God. This nation has done what Psalm 2 said. It has taken counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And our nation is doing that more and more. We have done so by claiming that God, like Superman, is now dead. Yet few really believe that. Paul argues in the beginning of verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Next week, if the Lord wills, we're going to open up that truth in a greater way. Humanity knows God is. They know he exists but they refuse to accept him. They do not recognize that he is God. In everything that they have that comes from God, they have now given some kind of scientific answer to how it has come about. Whether it is the air we breathe, the beating of our heart, the sun that shines or the rain that falls. So in the end, we need to notice how Paul debunks the recreation of God in the minds of human beings. For in the end, this rebellion against God is a lie, but it is a lie that has to be replaced. The truth has to be replaced by something. Every human being knows that God exists. We've we've shown that in Take away those who have rejected, the the, the atheists who have purposely rejected religion, and every other human being on the face of this planet acknowledges that there is some kind of a deity. They don't know the right deity, but they acknowledge that there is one. Every human being knows that there is a God, and every human being, even those who are atheists, recognize that they need him in their lives. Instead, than of acknowledging the true God, they seek to recreate that God in their own image. Well, let's go off and visit the Dalai Lama and see what he has to say. Oh, let's, you know, create a God that fits what I like, a God that swears a little bit, a a, a God that likes sports. Let's recreate God in our image. So they make false religions, false science, false everything. As verse 22 and 23 reveal, claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That is why God's wrath must fall upon the human race. 
Our wickedness, our rebellion is destroying his creation and it is destroying the very purpose for which we were created. What God made good, we human beings are turning to evil. It must be slowed down. It must eventually be stopped. And that is why we need the gospel. The gospel is not just good news. The gospel must be bad news before it can be good news. We must be saved from something. And unless the power of God brings that salvation into this world, every human being on this planet must receive the maximum penalty for our rebellion against the Creator. The full wrath of God falling upon us. And that is why the gospel is necessary. We must proclaim it. We must proclaim sin, or we are going to have a view of the Dalai Lama and Aaron Rodgers. A view that God is a good God, he's a nice God, he's a good friend, he's, he, 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 you know, he's, he's so loving and he's so kind, he would never do anything like that, he would never send anybody to hell. He must have been reading a different Bible. But he also must miss nature. If you're going to believe in a God at all, the kind of God that he described, then why would that God allow the coronavirus over in China? Why would he allow, if he's such a good, loving God, why would he allow an earthquake in Turkey, in Puerto Rico, a tsunami that slams into Indonesia or Bangladesh? Nature itself teaches us God's character. And if we are going to rebel against him, we're going to experience his power. The power of judgment. We need the gospel because we need salvation. That gospel is that God has wrath, but he also has Christ. God created us for a purpose, to bear his image in this world. We rebelled and said, no, God, we're going to bear our own image in this world. God has to punish us for that. He did so at the cross as he poured out his wrath upon his own son. And in doing that, God showed, yes, Aaron Rodgers, I am loving, but I am also wrathful. You can make a choice. You want to talk about choice, abortion being a choice, and all these things? There is a choice. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do not believe and be condemned. 
But man has loved darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. God did not send Jesus Christ into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Are you saved? Are the people around you saved? Have they come to know the power of the gospel to change our hearts and mold us into the image of God? And so in conclusion, I ask you, since God's wrath falls upon all humanity without partiality, will you seek the one remedy God offers? Or will you join the rest of the world in rejecting that offer? That's the message of Romans 1, 18 to 23. May God have mercy on us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, our human sinfulness proves your righteousness. You are right in judging. You are right in bringing destruction upon this world. And if it wasn't for the gospel, this world in which we live, which is, according to Jesus, 2,000 years ago, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah and worse than it was at the time of the flood, we should be destroyed. you sent your son that those who believe in him might have eternal life. Open our hearts to that understanding and let us live not for the feel good but let us live for the glory of God. It is in his name that we ask it Amen.